Hello and welcome to Called to Queer, where we hold space for the queer Mormon women, genderqueer, and intersex experiences. I'm Colette, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Kate, and my pronouns are she, they. Today, we're interviewing Sammy Simpson, and we're so excited for this conversation. But before we jump into that, we wanted to start off by seeing what brought us queer joy this week. So Kate, what brought you queer joy this week? Actually, I just got back from Poland. I don't know. 14 hours ago or something like that. And while I went to Poland to visit my friend Leah and her partner Forrest, who are doing research, they were in Romania and now they're in Poland. And we just went on this really great train ride to the north to the Baltic Sea. And hanging out with them is absolutely queer joy for me every time. Because it's so nice hanging out with people like Leah, who we do similar work and stuff. We understand each other kind of on a deep level of just our experience that other people don't get. But it's so nice being able to talk with her partner, Forrest, who is a man and can talk with me about gender. And sometimes I just need my bros. I need bro friends. And I don't realize until I'm around somebody who, first of all, affirms my gender, makes me feel part of, of a group, makes me feel my gender, that how important that really is to me. And so hanging out with them is just very healing and it makes everything feel so much more normal than other interactions that I have. So that brought me a lot of queer joy this week. Oh, that's so cool. I'm glad you were able to do that, even though I know it was a kind of whirlwind weekend for you and you kind of went offline. I'm glad you were able to just be present with people that bring you that sort of joy. Yeah, thank you. All right, cool. How about you? Uh, So we're recording about a week after General Conference, and don't worry, my queer joy is not General Conference itself. (laughs) I was actually invited to give a presentation about exploring the rainbow spectrum at a Thrive for Women conference. Thrive is a post-Mormon group organization, and a lot of times they do different conferences on General Conference weekend to give people something else to be doing. And so they're about... 300 women that signed up and were there. And then there were different keynotes and different breakout sessions. And I was doing a breakout session and I split time with another woman who is a bisexual and pansexual married to a man. She told her story. And then I just gave a super quick overview about here's what LGBTQIA means. Here's the genderbred person, which I know is not perfect, but it helps show people the difference between sex gender identity, gender expression, and attraction. Talked about what different types of attraction are, because so often people just focus in on sexual attraction, and there's different types of attraction. And then we had some Q&A. And it was just a lot of fun to connect to other people in this space, whether they're queer themselves, whether they have a loved one that's queer. I just love talking about queer stuff. That's a big part of why we have this podcast. And so it was really fun. And I had a new cardigan I wore that's blue that has rainbow birds on it. And it just made me really happy. Love that. That cute. (laughs) Yeah, I was very happy to find it. I love rainbow, but I'm particular about the sort of rainbows they I wear. And most are just too bright and bold. I'm like, I want softer rainbows. So I was excited to find that. (laughs) How cool. Right, right. Yeah, congratulations on doing that. Thank you so much. It was cool to just be reached out to. I didn't 
say, let me do this. Someone reached out to me. And so that was also cool. Just yeah, someone finding me and saying, do this. Very cool. But how about you, Sammy? I'd love to hear Queer Joy from you. Yeah. And I'm really glad we're focusing on this because the week after general conference in the therapist, queer Mormon therapist world is always, I'm always nervous for it. And it was a really heavy week. And I had a really incredible session doing family therapy where I got to witness the liberation of mom, a parent, just facilitating the liberation of daughter. And right as mom has been processing her own queer identity, seeing the ways that has helped their relationship and healing happen. And it's just always... It, it was like a session where afterward I was just like pumped for the whole rest of the day because it was pure queer joy. At the end of the session, I was like, healing looks really good on both of you for the record. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. Those are the sessions you live for as a therapist. I'm so glad you were able to have that, especially as you said, the week after general conference can be so hard. And so to have some really amazing sessions and seeing healing is so neat. Yeah. And it's... When you're doing family sessions, I always go in a little bit nervous for how it's going to go and really just hope that their relationship feels safer and warmer by the end of it. And it doesn't always go that way. And so it was, it's really nice when you see people just really show up. Yeah, it's powerful. So incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. Well, I'm excited for this. Neither of us really know you, but we were talking to Lacey Bagley, who we had on a few episodes ago, and she was like, you should talk to Sammy. And I'm always down to connect with more queer people, especially queer therapists. So happy you said yes. Would you mind just giving your an overview of kind of your queer Mormon story and we can go from there? Yeah, I was raised in a very Mormon family. I was a little bit, probably like of all of our children, one of the more rebellious ones, at least that was kind of, <laughs> I was always like questioning, but why do, why is it that way? That doesn't seem right or fair. And I got into like junior high and was, you could say acting out. I was like looking at, you know, doing things that were not within church standards. And I had this experience, had a, my first crush on a girl and I had no idea what to do with that. And then we ended up like really connecting and and I had really strong feelings for her and I got just completely I started feeling very guilty and I remember going and talking to my bishop and it was just like from that point on I cut off a part of myself that I really honestly until recently didn't realize was still there and was cut off completely And I didn't realize how, even though my attraction to women was not a huge part of my life, it was a very essential part of my life. And I just went as deep into the closet as you could go. And I remember there were rumors about me liking girls. And I just remember like pushing hard against those, like absolutely not. That was so scary to be identified that way. So I got really zealous, I think, about my worship and and my religion. And I got a lot of feelings of worth and value from that and went on a mission speaking Spanish in New Jersey 
I really loved my mission, but I also was sick almost the whole time. Came home early, went back out, then came home and I worked at the MTC for almost three years training missionaries while I was going to BYU. Then I started my my master's program in marriage and family therapy at BYU. And at the same time, I was working at, I was working for Flourish Therapy, who I work for now. But at that point, they were still housed in the first in Circle House in Provo. And I started doing family therapy with LGBT youth and their families and realized very quickly, there is no handbook. There's no handbook for this. This is having a session with a queer individual is a very different thing from having a session with their Mormon family members. And I didn't want to keep going to school, but I realized that this was research that had to be done and that this was a population that needs and deserves expert skill and expert attention and knowledge. And so moved to Virginia to do my PhD at Virginia Tech in marriage and family therapy. And I am done with everything except my dissertation. It's really exciting to be almost done with that. But yeah, my dissertation is identifying best practices. How do you work with queer youth and young adults in Latter-day Saint families? How do you make sure that's safe? How do you use your own identity in those sessions and your own experiences. And I'm really excited to start disseminating that so that any therapist can just pick it up and say, I don't know what to do, but here's the paper that tells me. Wow, that's awesome. That is a great story in 60 seconds. So I have to, the academic in me wants to ask some academic questions before we deep dive into a lot of really good stuff that you've got you've got going on here. Can you just give us kind of a hint, an overview of how you do that research? How is it? I assume it's pretty qualitative and how you go through that process a little bit. Yeah. So it is largely qualitative, but it is a mixed method study. This has been, I'm going to try not to make it too jargony, but it. I have a, the first phase is totally qualitative. I'm interviewing basically the top three to five pioneers in this intersection who have really dedicated their careers to this. And then I'm coding those interviews and then creating a questionnaire for a group of 20 therapists who have a lot of experience doing this. And that's going to be qualitative in that they're going to answer their questions in a survey. They're open-ended. How do you do this work? What are the best practices? What works? What doesn't? And then it's a Delphi study. So then I'm going to take their answers, find the themes, and then send it back to them and ask them, show how much of their answers were unanimous. And they're going to rank each of those best practices in order of importance that they see them and and then we'll publish. That is so cool. That's awesome. Maybe we can, for those people who don't know, unpack a little bit what qualitative means and why it's important to do qualitative work. So my dissertation is not necessarily considered qualitative. So maybe you can talk about those distinctions. Yeah, well, and I think it's really important, especially when you look at queer Mormonism, because almost all the research we have right now that's published is quantitative. 
And basically that means you think your science and numbers and reliability, like you just, it's a lot of calculating and it's a lot of survey responses. You might have a scale from like one to five, how much homonegativity did you experience growing up? Whereas I see qualitative research as really crucial here because it's more nuanced. I get to do interviews and I get to almost quite literally unpack the words. And I think language has so much power. And really queer people in the church have been given church language to describe their identity. And so when we when they're able to use their own words, their own story, I think it's honestly the only way we're going to access any of the nuance that is really important in queer Mormon experiences. Thank you so much for explaining that so succinctly and well. Thank you. Just staying on dissertation for a little bit longer, I am curious, what made you, like you said, hey, there's a need for this research, but why particularly these questions about best practices? Because there are some resources out there already. What made you do a deep dive into this and decide to talk to therapists instead of maybe queer individuals themselves? That's that's a really good question. I think there is a need for more queer stories in our research, especially queer Mormon stories. But so the research we have right now about LGBT Mormons is, is really about what is their mental health like? We're not asking the questions, how do we make it better? And I think that we needed to start somewhere, right? Like, it's so new. And I literally have a folder in my computer with every single article that's ever been published on this population. And that's been really helpful because we, now we know family experiences are really important. Having a sense of community is really important. That having a sense of acceptance and celebration around your identity, right, is going to help you have much better mental health outcomes, lower rates of suicidality. Like we needed that. But we don't have anything that is really clinical at this intersection, right? It's not how do you help and support queer Mormons in thriving. But we also know that in Utah, we have, I think, the highest rate of suicidality among LGBT teens. And that's something that I found was overwhelming. When I first started seeing queer people, I was really overwhelmed by how much suicidality there was. It was, they just seemed like so much closer to the brink of not ever coming back. And we also know that research says that family at that age, family acceptance is life-saving and family rejection puts them so much closer. And so it's not so much, there's only so much I can do with a teenager who is depressed at home and going to church and being misgendered and not like being accepted at school when their parents are still not using their correct pronouns and they are being put back in the closet on a daily basis. But it's really hard. It's a delicate dance. And so I just, yeah, I was like, I know that this has to happen. And I know it's like the hardest clinical work and nobody wants to do it. And we need it. We really need it. So needed. Thank you. I'm so excited to see what you find. Like I know anecdotally things that help, but to then have some research to back it up, I think will be incredible to be able to have a handbook of sorts to say, yeah, this is what I need to be doing to best help my clients. I love that. Yeah. Thank you. 
But also this push, I think there is so much more emphasis on community care and family care than in the past. And we're thinking a lot more about how this is an ecosystem rather than an individual's own experience. And so for you to be able to expand on that, especially in that family unit, that is Mormonism's family units are just different than other family units to be able to work within that ecosystem. It's this work is so important and necessary. So thank you for doing that. Absolutely. I, I don't really know if I had a choice. I got in the therapy room and I was like, dang it, this <laughs> is rough. But yeah, it, it's completely systemic. It's not just a matter of why are they choosing this? It, it goes so much deeper. And I think that the Mormon church and Mormon families is where a lot of us learned who we are and what our identity is and was. That was a systemic process. That was a relational process. And I think that the healing around that and unlearning those messages also is going to be relational mm -hmm. and systemic. Absolutely. I want to go back. I think it's interesting you said I didn't have a choice, but in telling your story, you deeply put yourself back in the closet and then you decided to work with queer individuals or like you were placed, like, how did that come to be? Cause you, <laughs> I think that's very interesting how that wound up. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the typical story that you hear. I, so for me, it really, my connection and work with the LGBTQ communities started when my stepsister came out and our family was adjusting around that and responding in our each our own way as we tried to reconcile our love for her with the beliefs that we had been given. And then I also had a guy that I had dated who came out when I was at BYU and people just started showing up in my life and coming out. And so I really, I started out as a, a pretty vocal ally and that's been what it was for quite a while until my best friend, Carson Tuller, asked me, I never asked you before, Sammy, do you experience any fluidity in, in your sexuality? And I, I just, I was like, I need to think about that. And I really, I went back and I, I sat with it and I realized I get to do what a lot of straight and cis people don't do, which is have an internal inquiry about my sexuality. And I did realize that it, it was not as rigid as I had thought. And yeah, it's been like a couple, probably three years of me just trying to allow openness to be there and just noticing whatever is there. And yeah, I'm definitely bisexual. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> I'm definitely I'm bisexual. I'm definitely bisexual. <laughs> That's coming to that identity, bisexuality, there, there are a lot of different options when you're thinking about sexual fluidity to really understand yourself to be able to say I'm definitely bisexual is also really cool. I tell a lot of folks who have been coming to me, especially recently, who are saying, I don't really know what's going on here. But I often tell them, look, everybody gets the chance to come out. If you're coming out as straight, way to go. I'm so glad that you have figured that out for yourself. But we don't do that as 
Latter-day Saints, we don't have that. We automatically Mm -hmm. default to rigid, straight, heteronormative, cisgender understanding of ourselves. And so it's also a really cool experience to figure out your cis or figure out your straight or something like that. There's liberation in asking the question. I, I think every straight cis person needs to do an internal inquiry about their own sexuality because it's often, right, we just, the world has made this assumption about us. And so we made the same assumption and there was never a question of, could there be something a little bit more nuanced going on? And if there is, do I feel the freedom to get in touch with that part of myself? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we can talk about that process a little bit more for you and coming to understand your fluidity and thinking, maybe reflecting back on your past and all of that. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. And it's, this is one of the things that there are all kinds of misunderstandings about bisexual people. And so, right, for me, there was this question of I've never, other than that one experience in like junior high, I've never dated a woman. Is bisexual the right word? Because it's, I don't feel like exclusively attracted to like cisgender people, right? There is, there's a lot more, there's just more, there's more there. And, but the question, there's a misunderstanding. Well, if you've never really dated a woman, how do you know? Like, how does anybody know who they like? It's, (laughs) we, we just notice, we just notice. And so I think I, I am dating right now I'm dating a cisgender straight white man and and so there are like a lot of a lot of us have to do what does exploration look like in the context of the boundaries and agreements that I have currently in my life and for me and we my partner and I talk through it a lot it's just, for me it's a lot of noticing because we are monogamous but allowing just the space and the freedom to notice somebody and say wow she's gorgeous and allowing to say that openly and have that space and language accessible in my own home and in the circles that I'm in. I think even though I'm not actively engaging sexually or romantically with anybody but my partner at this point, it is affirming. It is, we have Mm -hmm. affirming moments that I have access to in the context of where I am in life. And that's been really exciting. Yeah, so we can, I would like to talk a little bit more about that. I think the way that you phrased it in your introduction is that once you recognized or people started asking you about your sexuality when you were younger, that you became more, I don't remember the word that you used, but more Mormony. Yeah. So can you talk about that link and that fear that you had about this and how maybe that is different now? through this process of being able to explore that and being able to feel those things. Yeah. And I will say too, that it was also a time of exploration for me early in junior high. I was having a hard time. We had just moved back to Utah and I was having a hard time making friends. And so my friend group was a little bit edgier. And so I was experimenting at that point with boys and girls and just knew that my mother could never know. And (laughs) And it would break my mom's heart to hear if I said anything like if I were to say that like I grew up in an anti-LGBTQ household I don't think that yeah yes in in the fact that I was taught that it was wrong but I also grew up in a very loving household 
Mm-hmm. And but I think that it speaks to the level of stigma that goes with our attractions that I grew up in a very loving household and still I knew my mother could never know. And she was concerned about what I was doing with boys. And so I just, it was like this very intense experience where I was like, okay, I'm going to repent and I'm going to be clean. And I, I lost all my friends. I started like hanging out with the very, very Mormon kids. They're really hard to get in with. It was a very lonely time. And now I look at it as cultural assimilation. I I made myself into what was going to be acceptable. And the Mormon choir kids were were (laughs) where I was going to be socially accepted. And I made myself into that. And I think any time we consciously or subconsciously cut off a part of ourselves, and wrap it, put it in a box, wrap it in saran wrap, throw it in the deep in the closet. It makes us sick in ways that we don't even understand. I grew up with a lot of chronic illness and it ulcers all throughout high school. I got an ulcer on my mission. I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And, and I say that not because I'm like healed, but because now that I, it's like I, you see these plants behind me when they start to grow, when I started to, if I give them a bigger pot, they're going to grow into that pot and they can never go back in into that smaller pot. And I think that th- there's been a very slow, intentional deconstruction process for me around my religion, my gender my sexuality, my right to take up space in the world and stop trying to fit into the costume that is going to be accepted by everybody. I haven't had, I have so many fewer flare-ups with my chronic fatigue. I just, I feel there's, even when things are hard, there's like an undercurrent of contentment that I never had for as long as I kept parts of me locked in a box in the closet. Thank you so much for explaining that. Colette and I have talked a lot about this recently. For those listening, if this resonates with you, if you haven't listened to Dr. Diamond's episode with us, we talk a little bit more about this in that process, but I think this resonates with a lot of, especially AFAB people who Mm. cut themselves off a lot of times from their own bodies and their own experiences within Mormonism, that our bodies are reacting and saying, we need something, we need this. Mm. And so I I think what you're saying actually will resonate with a lot of people. It resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's a almost a universal experience. So Dr. Martha Beck has also spoken on this. And when I sit with a new client, one of the first questions I ask is how their physical health has been. And a lot of times we'll notice they they get sick pretty often when other people are not getting sick, where they have chronic pain, chronic illnesses. And I think that it's almost inevitable physically, right? The body keeps the score and we know that. And I think especially in Mormonism, where the messaging is so subversive, and for AFAB people, I I grew up really genuinely believing 
I am an equal in this church and I have a voice and I am empowered and Sherry Dew said so. And I really thought that was the case, but I just, my body was like, I don't think that's true. (laughs) (laughs) I think think that might not be the whole story. To learn who you are and learn that the natural man is not an enemy to God. Actually, it's when we are in our most natural, warm, safe state and in touch with ourselves that we can like exhale for one. Sure. I want to dive a little bit more, if you're okay, into what it was like then having those kind of wake up calls, realizing, wait, maybe this is different than I thought and distancing yourself from maybe the church or from different institutions, different organizations as you figured out your queerness and what that experience was like. Oh, that's such a good question. So technically my records are still in the church and I'm allowing myself to just let that be what it is right now. There's no, for anyone who's in their own process, there's nowhere you have to be and there's nowhere you have to end up in in that process as long as it feels congruent. I think it really got intense when I was a starting to learn to be a therapist because there's also, I don't know, there was like this point of no return. Once the things you can't unknow them and once you see things you can't unsee them. And so I started seeing I was being told that like women are equals in the church. And then I I was like, where? There's no woman in the church that doesn't answer to a man, not one. It was a constant terrifying experience of leaning into an unknown and unraveling something that I knew went straight down to the very center of my identity. And it was, it's been a constant process of just leaning into saying that I feel more empowered and to be honest, loving and accepting than I did when I asked the last question. And so let's see what's here. And so that slowly has, then I entered into a space where I was really reconciling my beliefs with the LGBTQ stuff and realizing, yeah, policy is not doctrine. And that was a phase I was in for a long time. And then I was asked to be Relief Society president in my young single adult ward in Virginia. I was like six years older than everybody in the ward. And my bishop and I had a three-hour conversation about how that would look because I said, there's a level of authenticity that I'm not willing to sacrifice for this calling, but I do think that I could do some good here. And so I told him what I was and was not willing to do in that calling. And that lasted for, I don't know, like a year and a half. And then COVID happened and I was in quarantine with all the things I had put on the shelf and the shelf couldn't be ignored anymore for my own well-being. And so I had a conversation with him and just said, yeah, I, it's time for me to do another internal inquiry because a lot of this doesn't feel good. I think I've done what I could do here. But I was like, you know, I came in with my rainbow church bag and Heavenly Mother was talked about. And basically I was just like queering up <laughs> this ward in all the ways that were like permissible. And then I needed to take care of me and I have and I don't see myself. Going back, I think because what was what started out as questions about policy 
then became about questions of identity. And then that became this realization that I, for me, the messaging had separated me from my own intuition and my own body. And if you get in between anybody's relationship between them and their body, that's when you really have a lot of control. And so now I make my own decisions. And I was before, but I I am like learning to trust myself in ways I was terrified to. I thought if I trusted myself and followed my instincts, I was going to lead myself down the path of destruction. That was what I was told. And it turns out I'm the only one that knows what's best for me. Yeah. It's amazing. Have you felt that? Just, oh, wow. Like I can, I know how to do life because I know myself. <laughs> Yeah, but for it's, sure. it's a hard process to get there when you've been taught your whole life to not trust yourself, to turn over your authority to the church that knows better. And if you follow this path, and so it sets queer people up, I think, for a very hard place to be because so many of us are receiving personal revelation that's in contradiction to current church policies. And some would even argue church doctrine. And so it's a journey to come back to yourself and get to that place of, oh my gosh, I do know my life. And this feels really good. And it's so confusing too, because that's why I think we have so many physical manifestations of dissonance, because we are also taught, listen to how you feel, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's the the still small voice, you're going to feel peace in your body. And so there are elements of that where you're like, Okay, yeah. So I'm feeling like peace, like I thought I was taught to listen to myself. But then if you look more closely, right, if you feel dissonance and distress, that's from Satan, right? Mm -hmm. It couldn't possibly be t your body telling you that like, this might not be good for you. And if you feel good, then it is of God. And so it's this loophole, right? Like this feedback loop that the only answer is the answer you have to land on. So I thought, I think a lot of us think that we are trusting ourselves in our intuition because we're like doing what, what we call following the spirit. And so we don't have language. We don't even realize that we have been so disconnected from ourselves. And because we don't have the language, our body speaks for us. Absolutely. So you're in a unique position where you've experienced this and you've seen it, but you also have to now navigate parents through that. So you have these, you have queer youth who are saying, this is what I'm experiencing. I'm trying to listen to my body. I'm trying to get in touch with all of these things that I feel. Now, how do you talk to parents about that? Right. Because <laughs> it's the, it's the unbraiding, right? Queer kids, are so aware of this. They may not have the language for it, but they know. If I ask them how emotionally prepared and emotionally intelligent their parents are to have conversations around queerness and being affirmative, they know exactly where each parent is and how they're going to respond, at least initially. It is really hard, especially with married Mormon moms, to ask them to reconsider queerness as being not even, not only acceptable, but being celebrated. Because the moment that you ask them to look at that particular question, it then opens the door for questions about gender. Do I feel like I'm in touch with my most powerful self? 
Do I feel empowered? Do I feel like I get to take up space in my marriage, in my religion, in the world as an AFAB person? And then you add other elements like race and ability and things like that, age. We're lucky. Like those of us who are not married with children and are asking these questions, we have, yeah, we have a lot to lose because it's like unraveling our whole identity. But I've watched my my own mom. She's been such a trooper because she's been included. I asked her if she wanted to be included in my faith journey, even though it was going to be hard to watch. And she said yes. And I, I see her wrestle watching me live a life that like for her to even consider or even think that she might want, maybe she doesn't, but would unravel her family structure. And so when I bring this to parents, it's not just, are you okay with your child being an LGBTQ? It's, if you really look at this and start trying to deconstruct how you feel about this, you're going to learn a lot about how you feel about your own life. I mean, you can't, you can't go back in the pot once you have Mm -hmm. grown out of it. You can't. Yeah. Maybe you can give us a little bit of insight of how parents react to that. Not every parent is, is ready for that conversation with, with some parents, especially in like our first session, it, we're talking about, okay, we're not here to try and make you okay with LGBT people, right? The first step is we need to keep your child alive. Can we yep. all agree? Can we all get on the same page about this? And then it's the answer is, of course. And I, and I say right now, at least I have the leverage. I can still say that I'm Mormon, that I went to BYU. And that brings a lot of credibility and privilege. And so they, they get on the same page about that. And then I say, okay, the research says dot, 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 right? Accepting family practices save lives. And here are behaviors you can implement in your home to affirm your child's identity and without necessarily sacrificing beliefs. You don't have to understand it to have compassion for it. If I get to the point where I can have a conversation with parents about their own lives and their own liberation, it's we've been meeting for a while at that Mm -hmm. point. And that's work that typically you would do. I would have them probably see an individual therapist for, to be honest, Mm -hmm. because I mean, but there's no way that it doesn't come up if they really are leaning into the process. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a long process. That's a long time you're working with folks and trying to build this family unit together rather than just the individual queer person. So that's a lot of work. If I can get parents to come. Parents are really, at least for me, they're the hardest group of people to work with, mostly because they're so terrified that they've screwed up their kid. And so they're coming in. It's like a fight or flight response. They either don't ever come to session because that's way too scary. And I can't even, I can't handle being told that this is my fault, which is not how it goes, but I can see it. Or they go the the fight route and they come in and they are just, they're very defensive. And my child is always on their phone. And if they would just take their phone and put it away at night, they wouldn't be depressed. That is a hard place to start talking about deconstructing homophobia, transphobia. It's emotionally laborious, that kind of dynamic. There's just so many layers and so much going on. 
are they able to generally, if they're coming in and they're working and you have that fight response parent, are they able to get to a point where you can say like this, these are not the things that are causing your child suicidality. These are the things I can point to these things. They can see that's a transition they can make. Yes. But more importantly, what I do, so one of the models I do is called attachment-based family therapy. It's the number one evidence-based practice for preventing suicidality in depressed teenagers. And it's been adapted for LGB people. And then we recently published a paper on how to do it with uh, suicidal or trans and gender diverse teens experiencing suicidality. And so not only do I want the parents to get there, but the whole goal of my work is how do we create enough safety in this therapy room and in your relationship for not me to tell you that's why your child is feeling suicidal, but for them to tell you themselves. Mm -hmm. And so before they get to that point, I'm training parents on reconnecting themselves with their own experiences, what it was like to be a teenager, giving them ways to respond when they hear something that's difficult to hear. And I meet with them separately and I meet with the, the youth separately and we say, what has gotten in the way of you being able to come to your parents? And, and then I facilitate conversations where it comes from them. Yeah. Scary as hell for them, yeah. by the way. It's really vulnerable work, which is why we have to prepare and create safety. I think family things can be so tricky for those of us that grow up Mormon because we're told from the time we can remember that families are this eternal unit and the most important thing and families can be together forever. And then you see so many individuals, if they don't fit this perfect mold, they're now not seen as part of the family or just not as fully accepted and trying to get those two ideas to work of like helping the parents see the families can be together forever feels like a threat to your child. If this is how it's going to be. I don't know if you can speak. I don't know exactly what my question is, but it's just so interesting to me. I see it a lot with individuals who just sit in this intersection of you say that the family is the most important thing, but I've been rejected or abandoned by my family. Like how do you, how do I deal with that? Right. It makes me think just this last week, Elder Oaks gave an Elder Oaks talk in general conference. And we all just, we knew what that was going to do for all the people we met that with this week. And I saw, I guess his talk, he talked a lot about the, the importance of family and the family proclamation. And then on Twitter, I saw somebody say, I just got uninvited from Easter dinner with my family. So thanks, Elder Oaks. There are so many paradoxes like that. But I, I think that we're very, I would say that the LDS church is very pro-family structure. I don't know how pro-family they are in terms of processes because it just, does, it just doesn't make sense the way we do it. We say that we need to be kind and love one another. And of course, that's really important. But then we also need to let people know when we don't agree with their actions, even though they don't impact us at all. And parents are equal partners, but also I'm hearkening unto my husband and it doesn't feel like it makes sense, which is why it's so interesting to me that parents feel so rigid about it. Because I think there's got to be some, if they're really looking at it, they've got to see maybe this isn't as pro-family as I think it is because it's tearing mine apart. 
Yeah, for sure. Oh, this is just heavy and tough stuff. Yeah, but it, like it's so it's so great to have somebody who sits at this intersection themselves and also is working in this field and working to produce a dissertation. Your perspective is really unique and we're really grateful to be able to have you here because there's a lot to be said about the work that still needs to be done. You're very articulate in the way that you outline the way that process works and how difficult the work is. And I think that it, it might give parents who are at this intersection as well, a lot of hope listening to you talk that my process is going to be long and that's okay. That yeah. it's okay if I don't get it right off the bat. I'm not yeah. a bad parent. Like, I think mm -hmm. there is such a defensive move. Maybe we can ask about your parents. How do you feel? Yeah. You said that you and your mom are going through this faith transition together. That's a really unique experience. And maybe you can talk more about your parents and how that's been for you. Yeah. Yeah. And just to add on to what you said, I think parents also need to know that research both in and out of Mormonism indicates that the way that parents initially respond is typically not where they stay. Like hashtag, it gets better. It really does. My parents, so I'm a child of divorce. So I have a dad and a stepmom and a mom and a stepdad. And so it was my stepsister that came out initially. And so as far as LGBT things go in that side of the family, they come a really long way where there used to be a lot of division and pain. My stepmom went to Pride with my sister and her girlfriend and loved it. She had like a rainbow clown wig and was like, this is the best. <laughs> Um, that is not where we started. That's not where she started. And with my dad, he just doesn't have a lot of input. My mom and my stepdad and I, that has been a pretty big dividing thing for us. There was at one point in time, we got into this big argument about acceptance and how do you define acceptance and what does that look like in a way that's okay church-wise. And, and he expressed to me that he felt that my allyship was me being deceived by Satan. But we're in a healthier spot now where we just know that's not something that we can talk about. And we try and engage around other things. But that does really limit, right, how when you have to cut off such a big part of yourself to engage with a parent, there's only so much an emotional closeness that you can get to. You'll never see the fruition and potential of that relationship. And with my mom, she's still very active. She's trying to figure out how she feels. She'd be a good mama dragon because she's kind of like, I still like, I still like think that, well, maybe not, but I think that maybe it's wrong, but also like everybody deserves love and everybody deserves to feel like belonging. And we've, I've brought home queer friends who couldn't go home for Thanksgiving and Easter and Mother's Day. And they came to our house and they were treated very well and loved. We're really good at, at that as Mormons. And I also watch her struggle to reconcile it. I think that I've brought a lot of gray area into something that used to feel very solid and black and white for her. And it's, it's, it's she's really deep in the water now. And we have conversations where she worries about when I talk about having religious trauma. And of course, as a mom, there's a question of what part did I play and could I have done something different? But also she raised me in absolutely what she believed was best for me because it had worked so well for her. She worries about how it impacted me. And she'll ask me questions about what I think. And I also 
need to remember that for her to get this deep in the water with me, she is confronting that question about what about my own life and what about my own happiness and do I feel like the most empowered version of myself. And so I I don't have any expectations for where she will end up. I just hope that wherever it is, she feels peaceful about it because I can't dictate to her what her faith needs to look like because I can't ever understand what she would lose if she really did unravel all of it. It's a very empathetic position that you've taken. And I think it's really helpful for me personally, I don't know about everybody else, but for me personally to listen to that and think, I've held my parents' feet to the fire and I recognize that there's a lot of things that for them, it would be very difficult to unravel all of that. So thank you for expressing that. I do wonder if you working with these parents has been healing for you in this relationship that may not be able to be repaired really quickly if you get that sort of healing from working with other parents. I do, but I think it's like... (laughs) line upon line, so to speak, where I do see healing as a reciprocal process. Colette, you had mentioned we were taught to be blank slates in in the therapy room. And um, not only, I don't like, I'm not capable of that. I don't think anybody's capable of that, but it's also, there is a very interactive reciprocal healing that occurs when people show up and do healing work. I'm impacted every day, even in the areas where my story is not even close to the same as my clients. I learn a lot about myself and and my own things in hearing them tell their stories. So it is healing. And I also, clarifying, I think that it's important that we have empathy and compassion for the unraveling that our parents would have to do. And it doesn't justify harmful practices. We, You absolutely yeah. get to dictate the boundaries around what feels safe for you and your parents' relationship. And that's why I'm able to have so much compassion and empathy for my mom is because she has responded very well when I have set a boundary and said, hey, this is harmful for me and it can't be in the space between us. Mm-hmm. You can have it over there. <laughs> but, but in terms of when it comes to me, yeah, you get to set the boundaries around what you feel safe. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think that's good for parents to hear too, that if your child is setting that boundary, that it's about them protecting themselves and being safe. And it's not about you as a parent. This is what they need. And it's because they want a good relationship with you that they're setting the boundary. Otherwise, it would just be cut off. Yep. I am curious. Can you talk more about how you created that safety with your parents to be able to have that conversation? I know you help facilitate that in the therapy room. But are there things that helped you personally to be able to have those conversations with your parents? I think that parents are really the ones that set the tone of the relationship. Kids will mirror parents and they'll respond in in terms of how that is. And so I think kids know which parent is going to respond which way. And I, my mom is the one that in my family was the most emotionally attuned and willing to do whatever it took to make sure that her kids felt loved. So I would say she did a lot of that work that allowed me to have a conversation with her that I could not have maybe with other parents. 
I also was very intentional and, and vocal about it. When I moved to Virginia, I knew I was going to be exploring. And so with the ones I interact with the most, my mom and my sister, I sat down with them and I said, I am going to be exploring. It's going to be really hard to watch. There will be things about this that like you don't like. Would you like me to include you? Because I value our relationship and I want you with me. But if it's too hard, let me know. And I will not, because it is, if I hadn't included them, they were going to miss out on me because I am different. All of my relationships are different now because I have shed a lot of expectations and I present differently in the world. But that did two things. That intentional conversation, it allowed me to, to, set expectations and say, this is happening. There was no elephant in the room. We were just, we were talking about the faith journey as it happened. And it also gave them the opportunity to step up and say, yes, I'm going to support you. Where I don't, I think that if they hadn't been given that option so explicitly, it would be what we see in a lot of, of our families, which is just this thing is happening and we're all just like, adjusting around it and we're not sure if we can talk about it and if we do are they present or do we talk about indirectly directly it all just goes to whatever family dynamics you have in place and I wasn't willing to risk that I needed to be in the driver's seat of that a little bit more that takes a lot of effort and courage and work and so thank you for modeling that for us to hear how that works it's front loading the emotional labor Mm-hmm. I think that it's saving us a lot of confusion and heartache long-term. For sure. Changing topics a little bit, with you having a partner right now that is a cis man that's straight, we've talked about bi erasure on our show before. I wasn't sure if you could speak to that and how your queerness still manifests or if you can just speak to all of that. Yeah, man. And he didn't grow up Mormon at all. I was the first Mormon he ever met. So he's been like just through <laughs> queer Mormon boot camp for the last year and a half. <laughs> yeah, that's a and lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. We actually, we really small tangent, but we do think after a while, I, I would tell him like Mormons are very unique. And I would say something and it would just like baffle him. And he would say like, that's crazy. And we had a discussion where I was like, can we not use the word crazy when talking about like my cultural religious experiences? Mm. Because that has, that's a lot. I call him my partner more often than I call him my boyfriend. I think because that's just very just inclusive anyway. I think that it, I love that word. I also have, we've had conversations where I'm like, so we're in a queer relationship. Right. I'll say I'm in a straight passing relationship and he and maybe other people are like, what do you mean straight passing? I'm like, my partner is straight, but like queer, like we, this is a queer relationship because, because it's not totally cishet. And I think just inherently having any sense of openness and inquiry present can queer up a relationship really quickly. I had a dream one night and I woke up, I was like, I had a dream that you told me you didn't believe that I was bisexual because you'd never seen me with a woman. And he was like, I'm so sorry. That's a really crappy dream. I will never do that to you. Because I think that they're also with a lot of bisexual people is imposter syndrome about what it's supposed to 
look like or feel like. And it just, it doesn't matter. It's just, it can change by the day. It can be really rigid. It's whatever. Just, it's all about showing up as your whole self. That's all it is. So he, he recognizes this as a queer relationship. He talks about it in those terms, uses that vocabulary. Yeah. I think typically mostly when I'm around because it's easy to forget. We're, we're boyfriend, girlfriend. We live together. We have a great relationship. Obviously, my work and what I do means queerness is always in proximity. But he did. He would. And, and when we have conversations, like he's in agreement, like, yeah, this is a queer relationship. I think that's really important for our listeners because we do have so many bisexual women, cis women who are in straight passing relationships and they need that from their partners. They need that recognition from their partner. That's that's what the relationship is. And it's also, I think for him, I've watched him have a lot of healing around because he is straight, cis, het, white, all the things, but he's realizing that he also has chains that he was bound with, whether that be the chains of what a man looks like, the chains of what a body looks like, what is acceptable. And I think even though he feels more, I think he probably feels more firm in his identity as a straight cis man than before, because we have discussions where I'm like, well, have you ever been attracted? Or have you ever, you know, if he's like, no, well, like, that's not something that I do, or that's not something that I like. The question of how do you know? comes up. And and I think that it's allowed him to have some room to grow and realize that everything gets to be in question. And that's the just ultimate liberation. I love that because I really do believe that people should be able to come out as straight, like they recognize themselves as straight, but only after they've gone through that exact process of asking those questions, figuring out those things for themselves. And it provides you a deeper authenticity and understanding of yourself to be able to come to those conclusions. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to watch. Yeah. I think it might've been when we had the episode with Blair Osler, they were saying that someone had come up to them and were like, you know, I'm kind of jealous of you. And she was like, why? <laughs> well, you've been able to really figure out your sexuality and gender identity and take that deep dive. And they're like, y you can do that too, you know? <laughs> like, you don't only have the opportunity to do it if you're queer. Like, everybody should do that deep dive to figuring themselves out. And then, yeah, come out as straight if that's where you're at. And I just thought that was a very good perspective that now I love talking to people about. Like, have you actually examined this area of your life and yourself? Yeah. And it, and then it, it applies to everything, right? Because then there is like the questions of even monogamy and that this is what a relationship looks like. Everything's on the table for examination. And I think that's it. So many people don't ever get to know that. And so they just go with whatever direction that society takes them because it, I guess it works. Those of us that it, it just couldn't work for, we had the privilege and the cost of having to ask those questions early on. Maybe you could just talk a little bit more about the bi-erasure experience, but, but being bisexual within the queer community and how that feels, where you feel like there could be improvements. Do you feel like 
you have a, I guess, stereotypical experience being in a passing by relationship? Those sorts of things. I That's such a good question because I think that there really is not... I Maybe other identities, it, we have a stereotype that goes with being lesbian or being a gay man or being a trans person. Of course, those experiences vary, but just bisexuality in, in its very nature is variant. There are so many ways that can look. I also don't feel like bisexual people really have created community with one another the way that maybe lesbian people, gay people, trans people have because of bi erasure. And I think because the way that we show up in the world can look so cishet. I mean, look at me. I've got long hair and I'm wearing makeup and I typically dress fairly feminine. I definitely have more masculine days. I have a lot of masculine and feminine energy within me but the only reason that is present is that I've dug it up my queerness I had to excavate and I think a lot of bisexual people have that I'll have clients even not in the church who are bisexual and say yeah I don't think that I'll ever like have a conversation about homophobia with my parents because unless I date someone of the same gender Mm -hmm. this conversation is not worth having with them unless until it becomes relevant. And of course, you can have that conversation if and when you want. But I do think it's relevant. Because if the people in my family have oppressive views about anybody's identity and what's okay, it does impact me, even if that's not my identity. So yeah, I think we're pretty disconnected. I would love to have more bisexual friends and it's always so fun when I go out with a friend and we'll be at dinner and they'll say oh so like I'm bisexual and then I'm like me too and then we just like get (laughs) and then there's this energy I knew it you are like there's something about you there's just something about you and we I don't know if I'm stereotypical or not but I think that's because we just we don't know each other it's yeah when I happen upon a bisexual person in the wild, I just like, <laughs> really? <laughs> Going along with that, though, there is this sort of expectation, especially within Mormonism, that part of bi erasure is then you get to choose the person that you just wait around for the next person that you fall right. in love with and wait for the person who is the right, quote unquote, gender or sex So how do you approach those questions of you get to choose? It's, I honestly think it's such a dumb question. Right? I feel like, I feel like we're like 10 to to 15 years beyond this question, but Mormonism isn't, right? Yeah, right. Because I, and I've had people from my mission where finally years later, we're having conversations. And the only reason that I get to have conversations with them about their own coming out as bisexual is because. They made it. They got married in the temple in a straight passing relationship. And it's something that I can talk about now because it doesn't apply to me anymore. I just don't think that's how it works. How do you you get to choose? Everybody gets to choose their partner, right? Like you don't always get to choose who you're attracted to, but you choose where you put your energy and you choose. If I am with my partner for the rest of our lives, it's not because I chose to be straight or I chose men, it's because I chose him. So yeah, like every, 
everybody gets to to choose their partner and yeah, like why are we still asking that question can you talk about that a little bit more maybe i don't know if these people from your mission are closeted or whatever but that's a really interesting conversation to have i think and it sounds like you've had you said dr diamond dr lisa diamond on the show her research about sexual fluidity and orientation is just so groundbreaking and it's like global right one of the biggest things that she found correct me if i'm wrong i haven't looked at this study for a while is that like most people or at least a lot of people who identify as heterosexual do experience some fluidity that there's like a lot yes. more bisexuality in the world than we talk about which is why we i think i feel so disconnected from any bisexual community i love how many people are now coming out as bisexual because i think we're finally starting to get rid of the notion that it's rare I love to think that I'm really unique, but I also really love knowing that I'm like not an anomaly, that this is very yeah. natural and it's worldwide and it's the way that it's been. So yeah, but I had a lot of fear about coming out simply because I was like, oh, I don't want everyone to think that's like why I started doing this work. My, my family's been waiting for me to come out as something for years. They didn't know what it was going to be. And honestly, I haven't had conversations with every single one of them because it was going to be made into this, oh, that explains everything. When in reality, my work allowed me to get in touch with that part of myself more than anything. This conversation has been so good and we've already taken up quite a bit of your time. Is there anything that you were hoping we'd ask about or that you wanted to talk about that we haven't already? That's a good question. I think just, for, for anybody who is trying to figure out their own relationship with queerness and Mormonism, it's really easy for anyone else to say, oh, you should just leave the church. You should just leave. It's not healthy. It's really oppressive. They don't want you there because in many ways that's true. And also you're also going to be told what your relationship with queerness looks like and what it should look like. I just think it's so important that the number one thing that people who are in this faith queer deconstruction is just listen to just start listening to yourself and figuring out what you want and that starts with baby steps of if I were to eat anything today what would I want to eat if I were to wear anything that feels like me today what do I want to wear and asking the questions about what you, at your truest nature, want and desire. Because the whole point of this is that nobody gets to tell you how to do it. Nobody. You don't have to leave. You don't have to stay. You don't have to show up in a certain kind of queerness. You don't have to come out. And I think part of at least my own journey was learning to trust myself again and realize I do, I deeply do know how to like settle in and sit below the waves of expectations of others. And I'm still learning how to unpack that every day and sit on the bottom of the ocean and just ask myself 
I'm in a place where divinity feels internal. Every time I've tried to look outside of myself for what I'm supposed to do, I've experienced pain and sometimes even suffering. So just know like where I am in my journey, I still have my records in, but I don't go to church and I do drink. And for a long time, I didn't. And that was okay too. And every time I try to get rid of my garments, I learn that I'm not quite ready. And that's okay too. But the only way that I know what I'm ready for and what you're ready for is to start asking what you need and what you want and then honoring that. Because every time we sacrifice our needs and wants, we're we're pushing ourselves just a little bit further away from our truest self. And this is all about coming back home. Jeez, Colette, I'm so glad you asked that question. (laughs) What a note to end on. You can see both of us have gotten really emotional just listening to that. So thank you so much, Sammy. That was beautiful. Thank you. That was fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on. You're doing such great work and we look forward to your dissertation coming out and hearing more research from you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, I can't wait to get to know both of you better. (laughs) This is, yeah, really thank you for for having me on and um, for holding space for the, the queer Mormon experience. It's really important what you're doing. Thank you. We're all just lifting where we can to quote a church line. Yeah. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you joining us today. If you're liking these episodes, we'd love it if you'd rate and review Called to Queer on the podcast player of your choice so that other people are more likely to find us. We'd also love it if you'd share our podcast with a friend who could benefit from hearing these stories. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at hello at calledtoqueer.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Called to Queer. See you next time.